Hey, for the last few weeks, we've invested in the practice of prayer and meditation. I hope that has challenged you. I know that if we are investing that, there's going to be fruit in our lives from it. So we just want to continue to encourage you to that practice. We're going to make a shift into another practice at the end of our conversation today. But just want to remind you, just keep investing in those practices as we talk about them and lean into them as a church. And again, as a church, here we are. Thank you so much for gathering with us wherever you are and whomever you are with. We, you know, we're about a month into this community group dynamic, this innovation to small groups in this season. And I've heard stories from so many people about the, the life and the conversation and, and the reality of what it's like to do church in a context where you are known and where you can know others. So uh, we just encourage everybody in these last couple of months of 2020, um, please work to find and form a community group. If you need help doing that, please reach out to us, info at lifechurchvirginia.com, and we'll do everything we can to get you planted in a community group. You know, everyone is watching, uh, everyone is listening to this well after it's recording. I feel a little bit like Doc Brown talking to Marty McFly, uh, but I recorded this message well before the election so that what I say would not be colored by what has been done or what has been left undone, nor would the results of said election shade my thoughts. Chances are good, of course, since it's 2020, everything's an option, that nothing's even been decided until we gather and worship and, and have our conversations. But I'm confident, even if things haven't been decided, there have been a lot of declarations. There's probably been a lot of demonstrations, and, and I would like to speak to those declarations and demonstrations of belief uh, this morning. And continuing our series, of course, Imagination and Practice, because God has a different perspective, and God has better ways. I want to examine a truth that's right in our midst more than ever before, though we miss it due to the plethora of topics and uninvited perspectives and seething turmoil that we are all sitting in. The title of our talk this morning is For, With, and All the Covenantal Things. If you're taking notes, For, With, and All the Covenantal Things. I'm going to use our moment, so grant me some latitude because I'm going to talk about our here and now. I'm going to talk about the election. I'm going to talk about the dynamics that we are in within this election and all the things. This conversation, though, could not be more fastened to Jesus as our God and as our way to go. Let's read our, our scriptures, our hallmark scriptures. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. And he, Jesus, said to them, Follow me and I will make you. Follow me and I will make you. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to gather in this way. 
We ask for healing and wholeness throughout the world in the midst of this pandemic season. We thank you that there is no name above the name of Jesus. Father, we ask for our country. We just pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We pray for unity where God declares and even commands a blessing. We ask for us to be just agents of of healthy change and influencers of love, mercy, and grace. We thank you that we are a city set on a hill. And so, Father, we ask that our good works would glorify you in, in every opportunity. And so as we gather in this moment, we ask that you would mold us and shape us, make us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. Again, speaking to the election, your side lost or is losing, whatever the case may be, or your side won or is winning at this current moment. More than likely, based on those realities, you feel empowered and emboldened or you feel cheated and shushed. However you find you right now in those ways, I want to say to you, you, you is a figment of your imagination. Such a place of imagination, though, as we've been speaking the last several weeks, uh, we understand that imagination translates to hard and fast practices, ways of living, ways of seeing the world. Proverbs 23, 7, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 4, 23 says that we should keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Paul speaks to the same nature of who we are, the core of our narratives in 2 Corinthians 10, where he tells us, take every thought captive, because those thoughts will lead us to places, to ways, and to means. This is why when God comes upon fallen Adam and fallen Eve, he asks the question, who told you you were naked? Who gave you that thought? Who gave you that impetus for imagination? In no uncertain terms, I want to introduce or really double down on a panacea, a universal cure for all of us in our disconnected you. And it's simply this, friends. And I'm not speaking about the Facebook kind of friend, not the followers or the admirers, uh, those that like and heart their way into our orbit. I'm not necessarily talking about the companions that we have based on geography or similar affinities. Not even the coaches or the critics or the pastors or the mentors who are urging you to be a better you. I want to speak to friends in the scriptural setting, those who are sunk deep in covenant. Again, not based on geography or affinity or any of these other things that are fine mechanisms to establish some sort of relationship. But I want to speak to friendship that is sunk deep in covenant. And of course, we're speaking to David within this series. David has lots of friends. He has lots of allies. Samuel, Abigail, he's got mighty men of valor following him around from season to season. Abishag, but none more exemplary than Jonathan. Jonathan is the one with whom David enters into this covenantal, unique friendship. And I want to speak to that. But before we speak specifically to Jonathan, a brief word on covenant itself. So we're all playing from the same sheet of music. 
And the most tangible way for me to define the covenantal is to speak to it in terms of the shadow of the contractual. We live very much in a contractual day and age. We operate, we speak about even most relationships in terms of a contractual relationship. Contracts are not wrong or bad. No more than a pair of shorts are evil, though that perception changes when you wear said pair of shorts out into the middle of a snowstorm. All of a sudden, those shorts are wrong. Those shorts never work. Those shorts aren't for today. Contracts are what they are, and they serve their purposes well when the situation calls for it. Using one-on-one terms, contractual agreement dictates that as long as one party continues with their specific responsibilities, the other party must keep their responsibilities to match. Once either party ceases anything, the other party releases everything. Let me say that again. Once either party ceases any part of the contract, the other party releases everything and the contractual agreement no longer exists. This is contractual existence. This is good, again, for certain business dealings. It's good for relating to credit card companies, some employment opportunities. Contracts are good within those frames. Covenantal agreement outlines a way that each party is for and with the other, regardless of the benefits involved, regardless of the sufferings that are engaged, regardless of any promises or failures, for and with. This type of relating is good for marriages. It's good for how a a, a father or mother would relate to their child. It's good really for any relationship involving two or more humans that desires health and wholeness for self and other towards any length of time. I I could go on and describing and detailing these terms, but I'll just allow their stark differences to stand for themselves. So Jonathan... This guy, Jonathan, we're introduced to him in 1 Samuel 13. He's the eldest son of King Saul, meaning Jonathan's whole good future and fortune is seemingly at odds with David immediately. David's health and well-being is in complete violence to Jonathan's future and fortune. Additionally, we know that David was raised as a shepherd. David was kind of left out by himself in the field. He was the youngest of eight. Jonathan was raised in royalty. Jonathan had all of the fortunes. Their upbringings could not have been more different. Jonathan, I would suggest, probably had an easy road. David had a difficult one. After David's victory over Goliath, and remember, this moment is critical for understanding who David is. It's his first victory. It's what begins to launch him really. He has been anointed king, but it's the victory over Goliath that launches into really this avenue of all that he's been anointed for. You would think in this moment, Jonathan would be insecure. Jonathan would begin to trivialize what David has done. Jonathan would begin to feel threatened. But it's within this moment that we begin to see what covenantal relationship really looks like. Because after the victory, something miraculous takes, takes place. Jonathan really engages what I term a mundane miracle. Fire doesn't fall from heaven, but something beautiful takes place. 
Once David and Saul have this interaction, they understand what David has accomplished. In chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, it says this, As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And here's a practical piece here. Because to love someone and to have an affinity for someone ceases until we begin to really give of ourselves to someone. Verse 4, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. I want to reiterate, anything that's good for David in the natural was bad for Jonathan in the natural. But that didn't stop from the covenantal relationship that Jonathan was offering David. I want to mention, too, that this is not the first time we see this type of activity or environment around Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan is in battle and he's engaging the enemy. And he makes this comment to his armor bearer. He says, hey, I, I think we should go up. I think we should attack. Come, let us go over to the garrison, these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. And his armor bearer said to him, verse 7, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. That's the armor bearer's response to Jonathan. This suggests to me that this is a posture of soul, which is a way and a healthy practice outworked from a healed imagination. This is not just a certain personality. Jonathan had this way about him of reaching out and being covenantal, covenantally linked with those around him. I want to read a passage from this book, Leap Over a Wall by Eugene Peterson, which we've been referring to in this series. It's speaking to this Jonathan and David relationship. Jonathan's friendship with David brackets Saul's repeated attempts, ranging from irrational to rational to kill David. The front back to the story begins with these words. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. The bulk of chapters 18 through 20 are then filled with the details of Saul's six attempts at murdering David. Three times he tried to kill him with his javelin. Twice he lured him into almost certain death with the Philistines by offering his daughters, first Merab, then Michael, as prizes. And once he sent a death squad. These six failed attempts precipitate a major campaign to rid the country of David. As Jonathan enables David's escape, there's this end bracket. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. The friendship bracketed and contained the evil. Friendship forms. The posture Jonathan and David take, which is one of being for and with no matter what, is nothing short of miraculous. In that it is a miracle. They lack enmity against each other. They lack selfishness. They lack, lack competitiveness. But it also provides an environment towards what can be. 
because kind begets kind. Peterson continues on. Friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Like the sacramental use of water and bread and wine, friendship takes what's common in human experience and turns it into something holy. Friendship with David complicated Jonathan's life enormously. He risked losing his father's favor and willingly sacrificed his own royal future. But neither the risk nor the loss deterred him. He became and stayed David's friend. Jonathan's friendship entered David's soul in a way that Saul's hatred never did. And we see this even outworking later in David's life after Jonathan dies. Because David shows kindness to Jonathan's family by reaching out to Mephibosheth, the only survivor within the lineage of Saul. Again, we have to remember the context. David, in this day and age, should have wiped out Saul's lineage. Everybody. But David instead shows kindness and reaches out, remembering and entering into, once again, the covenantal relationship that he had with Jonathan and ends up blessing his heir, his lineage in Mephibosheth. And the fact of the matter is, this way, this for, this with, these covenantal things that Jonathan and David exemplify are further highlighted and engaged by Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, the words of Jesus. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone who would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He continues, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Luke chapter 18, there's this interesting moment in the life of Jesus where he's gathered around with his disciples and his mother and sisters and brothers come looking for him. And they say, hey, your family's outside. He's like, who's my family? They're all my family. Everybody who does the will of God is my family. The will of God being loving your neighbor, loving God. In that moment, Jesus is elevating the relationships of those around him, of not just followers, but people who are meant to do life with one another. We see this in Luke chapter 19 as well when Zacchaeus climbs a tree and Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector that everybody kind of pawns off and pushes away, but Jesus invites, Jesus reaches out, Jesus wants to draw close. In John 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus approaches and goes after. When everybody else would step away from, it's he who is embracing and including In John chapter 8, the woman who's caught in the midst of adultery is being dragged to be stoned according to the law. But it's Jesus who not only doesn't condemn her and not only gives her freedom, 
But he does something so interesting. He says, look, everybody who's around here who wants to throw stones, you are not disconnected from this woman caught in sin. In fact, he says, those of you who know no sin, throw the first stone. He's not just giving grace to that woman, not just yielding a mercy and releasing them from judging. He's making everything inclusive. He's saying, you all all the same. You're not disconnected. You are not better than she is not worse than we are all the same. It's reminding us that Jesus gets to the core of everything by saying, what's important? What's important? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12, verses 28 and 34. Peterson exacts a much-needed indictment towards all of us. He says, We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us, make a snap judgment, and then slot us into a category so they won't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are, and if we're in constant association with them, we become less. This election cycle has been rampant of finger-pointing, name-calling, side-taking, this notion of making people less, making snap judgments. And yes, we do that to people who we don't know, but we also do it in our homes. We also do it in our marriages. To think that that environment just stays out there is incredibly ignorant. What is happening out there, we are part of out there. I know in my own marriage, I make snap judgments about what Tanya is thinking. She makes snap judgments about my intentions. I had a conversation, honestly, it was a text conversation because Justin and I don't have a whole lot of time to connect these days between his job and his business and his family and my circumstances. We're just here and there and everywhere, but we had this text exchange where we were just real honest with each other about snap judgments that we had made about each other and about our friendship. And it was a great moment, and Justin responded to me at one point. He said, hey, thank you so much for reaching out to me. I wish I had done it earlier. And I said the same. You see, those snap judgments take place not just about people we don't know, but also those who are close to us. This is why covenantal relationship, being for and with, and coming to the recognition that this is how we are meant to be with everybody is so important. Circumstances don't cancel out covenant. Otherwise, it would be a contract. In the way of Jesus, being for, being with, and all the covenantal things, covenant is given and used by God, by His Spirit, to strengthen the weak flesh and overcome our circumstances. That argument with your spouse that rages, that has been ongoing for years now, covenant says, I'm for you, even in the midst of this pain. A covenantal friendship says, yes, you moved across the country, and, and yes, you may do different things than I do, but I'm still for you, and we are still with each other. Imagine, just imagine for a moment, all this talk about you, you, separate from and against her, him, them, this side, that side, is just that. Just imagine that it's just all talk. It's not real. You, disconnected, is a figment of your imagination. Imagine, in the actual essence of you, there's a deep desire and even a design for you to be for, 
with and all the covenantal things. Imagine, you don't have to be ruled by either or and against thinking or controlled by contractual style relationships. You can choose covenantal. As opportunity today, I want you to consider a few things. First, familiarize yourself with contractual versus covenantal thinking and relating. Notice how much of each is around you and inside you. Take note of the fruit of each. In your most intimate relationships, I would challenge you to trash contractual thinking. Trash contractual impressions and considerations and plant covenantal intimacy, covenantal presence for those relationships. And for our practice this week, do this in the context of communion. Gather with family, gather with friends. Maybe you're in a community group. I'd encourage you to grab whatever breakfast you have around and be with each other. Consider the cross. Consider who Jesus is, what he has done. And when you find yourself in the midst of this election fur, talking about this side or that side, remember that the you disconnected from all of that isn't real. We are built by the grace of God to be for, to be with, and all the covenantal things. I'm not suggesting this is going to be easy. It's pulling against the riptide of our culture to a large degree. But that's what Jesus invites us into. Let me leave you with this benediction. May we relate to God like he relates to us. May we name, reframe, and exchange contractual interactions for covenantal intimacy. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.